Yes, it is the Kevin Prendeville Show, and I want to welcome you back for those who have missed us for a number of days. Um, went through uh, reorganizing some stuff. We're going to be cutting some ads for the show soon, and we'll be going live again uh, shortly, uh, probably by the end of March. It is one of our goals for quarter one this year to get the show back on the road, back rolling. It is one of our most popular shows that we've ever done, so must be doing something right. And for those who don't know, this show is basically uh, a combination of everything that we talk about. You know, we have some shows and articles and topics that are strictly for business. And we have others that uh, talk more about social issues, be it civil discourse. And the Civil Discourse podcast uh, has been discontinued just due to low demand and, unfortunately, the high uh, production time uh, that it that it took. But we have been slowly pushing towards a more business-oriented topic. Now, that will change as different books come out and different uh, things need our attention. So this show was uh, designed to be more flexible. And as we're reintroducing it, we'll also reintroduce the show intro. This is the opening salvo, and this is going to set the tone for the rest of the show. So stay tuned as we talk about shipping, the coronavirus, and the U.S. construction market. I'm Kevin Prendeville. This is The Kevin Prendeville Show. And it is a beautiful day. It is uh, nice and cool and crisp here in Nashville. It is November, November February the 10th. Um, I forgot what month month we were in. It's been a crazy, crazy first couple months, but I want to welcome you back in and Starting today, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, illness, a sickness that is actually a sickness. And I know we had Crime of the Century. We had uh, quite a long-running podcast, a great, uh, a great book that talked about the sickening of the American mind, but that's done. And we're actually talking about something that will get you sick. That's right, the coronavirus in China. Now, this is a localized issue in China other than what, 12 cases in, in the U.S. that have all been quarantined, and uh, those people have now been released, I heard. And, well, it looks like, almost like, uh, if you remember the Ebola issue from just a couple of years ago, where uh, it was this big issue in Africa, and it came over to the U.S., and nothing happened. Well, this is different. China, uh, for better or worse, has one of the largest production centers for raw materials. They make a lot of the phones we enjoy. Heck, they may even made the shoes you're wearing, the shirt you're wearing, or the phone you're using to listen to this podcast right now. Or maybe you're watching us live, maybe you're on the computer, maybe you're listening uh, at your office, and they probably made a whole lot of things in the room that you're sitting in right now. Heck, maybe they even made the car you're driving in right now. That being said, the reason that the sickness is affecting so many different sectors and could be hurting the U.S. economy um, in the future because there is a little bit of lag is because China has actually extended their holiday. They take uh, about a month off where they don't uh, put out as much as they used to uh, or, or as they would during the normal working months. Um, so everything from for construction materials, from screws and um, – plastic items and and those kind of raw construction materials just simply aren't being made 
And that extension of the holiday in order to try to contain this virus that has killed now almost a thousand people, which is uh, crazy in this day and age to think that a plague like this uh, could happen. And I know it's China and they have like three billion people. So a thousand, you know, uh, is a small percentage of that. A thousand people is a lot of people. I, I know they say death in those numbers is just a st statistic, but well, it could have huge ramifications. Because now you've got uh, workers, even the ones that aren't sick, there's like 40,000 that, that haven't died that are, uh, that are sick, but the workers you know, that aren't, that are exposed to that um, or, or trying to prevent themselves from being exposed to it uh, may not go back to work. And it just delays orders for things in uh, most notably the construction industry in the U.S., which is already dealing with, uh, unfortunately, a shipping issue with truck drivers. There's a labor shortage of people who want to drive trucks for a living. Maybe because it's not the most uh, glorious job. Maybe because it's not the most interesting job. Whatever it may be, there is a lack of uh, labor in that, uh, in that sector. And that has driven wages up for the drivers that have remained in that sector. Which is great for them, and I'm not saying that you know they shouldn't be able to get their their money because they're entitled to it. But heck, uh, it's driving the cost of everything else up. Uh, you know, there's actually a historical example for this uh, during the Black Death in Europe, and I know we're going back to you know the 1300s here, but the Black Death in Europe killed off most of the peasant population, so the peasants that were there didn't necessarily have to be uh, regulated to serfdom anymore because they could charge more for their prices. Because heck, instead of two blacksmiths in town, there was just just the one guy, because the other guy keeled over, or his family did, and he moved out, you know, what have you. And so the, that process destroyed the what we knew as feudalism and kind of brought in the, the Renaissance age and the age of Reformation after that. So you go back uh, here, and you bring this back to modern times, and you realize that if the increase in shipping costs is... Uh, as the demand for shipping increases, as these back orders uh, from China finally get or will get, you know, fulfilled and by April or or maybe May, um, and you have a higher demand on the uh, on on the people who are in trucking, they're uh, they're going to be entitled to more. And and I'm again, I'm not saying they haven't earned it, but. Um, that's going to drive up the price of the good because the company's not going to just take that loss laying down and they're going to uh, pass it on to whomever they're building for. And that in turn will eventually uh, get passed down to the consumer in the form of higher costs for either products or higher costs uh, for, for living in some cases if you're building apartments or higher uh, prices for office spaces and then the products that are produced from those office spaces, for instance, uh, will cost more. And so I'm not saying this is going to wreck the economy. I'm not saying that this is going to, uh, you know, crush uh, crush job growth or the, the Trump economy. I'm just saying that, you know, if you see a, a, a constant rise in prices, you know, there, this is one of the factors. And it's another reason, too, that, well, uh, the, the stock market and business factors, the things that we're supposed to be telling people to invest in long term, aren't very controllable, are they? And that's the theme that I want to set for today's show. And this has been the opening salvo.
We'll take a quick break and we'll be back in just about five minutes. And welcome back to the Kevin Prendyville Show. Hope you enjoyed the break. Grab whatever you need to grab and uh, get ready to talk about some, well, more complex uh, financial topics than we usually talk about on this show. But this is very, very important. This is maybe one of the most important things of the young year that we have talked about. Uh, please listen up. And so uh, the a lot of large banks and a lot of the banking systems are actually switching away from the LIBOR system. That's L-I-B-O-R or the London International Bank um, Office Office Exchange Rate. And this is the rate at which uh, central banks can actually loan money to each other. And it's the benchmark that they use to loan um, to loan money to each other. And it's usually used uh, as a spread, this rate, and uh, the difference between this rate and um, other indexes and rates, uh, the spread between those are usually used to judge uh, consumer confidence and how investors, regular everyday investors, are spending their money. So it's been a really solid benchmark for most of the world um, for about 30 years now. It was adopted in the 1980s and has been used ever since. But, um, and this has been going on since 2014, the transition time is going to be coming up here in 2020. And um, this is this is a big deal because it's going to really change how um, how the ideas that that a lot of these banks have uh, been trading on uh, and concepts that they've been been using uh, it's going to change how those are seen because it used to be under uh, Libor the system that's going to be used until about 2021 2022 these systems um, were really based on not only the short-term loans between uh, the two entities but it's also, um, partly redu uh, based on the expert. Essentially, you had these uh, market judgments that were made to that would affect the rate uh, on these short-term on these short-term loans, and they came from uh, what are known as panel banks. And these are the five or so banks that would all meet and essentially uh, discuss the terms. And it would be or because they would be based on the. Uh, collateral available uh, collateral and capital that, that these banks had essentially their security and so it had a there was a lot of issues or potentially a lot of issues that occur, could arise from this as uh, other countries develop and this banking system becomes more and more complex um, it, it really wouldn't be a decent judge of risk and short-term risk because then it affects, you know, consumer car loans and that kind of stuff. So this shift has been going on since about 2014. And, and the reason it's taken so long is because you can't simply uh, just just change these things on a dime. You know, a lot of contracts are based on this and, and they have varying lengths. And uh, for instance, there's an article, uh, a pretty good article that explains a lot of this um, from October over at uh, morganstanley.com. And of course, um, you know, they know what they're talking about considering um, that it's their job to keep an eye on these uh, on these transactions. And essentially, this is how they, they describe it. Uh, Libra can't be simply swapped out with SOFOR in, exi in existing contracts because the reference, Libra here, 
at least not without an appropriate adjustments. And this is where it gets complicated because what's being what's being replaced with is really uh, a gauge that's based on the repo market. And the repo market is essentially uh, it can involve third party contracts. Um, and it is some of the reason for for 2008 or what made 2008 so dangerous. You know, you had a lot of these. Uh, the subprime mortgage mortgage uh, issue was really the the spark that just blew this whole system away. And the repo market was a big um, big factor in that. Now, and we we've talked about the repo market in, in a number of different articles, so I won't go over it too much in depth here. But essentially. Um, this new rate, which is heavily based on that market, has a lot less to do with human judgment and uh, market experts and has more to do with simple uh, transaction rates. It has a lot to do or a lot more to do with cold hard facts, so it's a little better for short-term exchange rates. Um, I don't know if it will actually drop you know, your car loan rate or anything like that in the future, but it will hopefully make lending between banks a little safer that will um, you know make the hopefully make the dollar um, in dollars in multiple countries especially developing countries so hopefully make it a little stronger now of course as we dive into more of the macro issues here uh, or sorry micro issues here from this macro perspective we have to know that the uh, the new rate, uh, is based is also closely tied to the U.S. Uh, tre Treasury um, because it's based on the repo market. So, and the U.S. Treasury, for better or worse, is pretty much the the strongest in the world. You know, bond rates comparatively to uh, let's say Germany or or any country in the EU, and I'm picking developed nations here. Any of those countries, well, our Treasury rates are simply better. You know, our prime rate is at least positive. You know, Simon Black talks about this, um, and actually, I think if you heard our show on the third, we talked about this, where some prime rates in um, in Europe have gone negative, and it's we've not ever gone to that territory. It's it's um, it's really territory that we have never have have never been in, and so it's a little unstable. And so by tying this new rate to the U.S. Treasury, especially the repo market, um, you know, loan uh, the, the loans between central banks um, can be judged a little better. Hopefully that will prevent the kind of cataclysmic market crashes uh, that we saw in 2008 and really throughout the history of the complex markets. You know, hopefully that will start to diminish that as we develop better methods for judging risk. I'm not going to say that this is going to prevent all market crashes or anything, but I am saying that this is a decent uh, swap so long as uh, the prime rate stays positive. I don't think that's going to happen, unfortunately. We're at a 1.5 or so right now, 1.55, and about every market crash, it gets knocked down by about five points, and that puts us... You know, if that if it if the average is out, you know that puts us at negative four, what negative four and a half, something like that. So, it's uh, it's not necessarily a 
not necessarily a, a totally, uh, you know, sure thing, but I think that for the average investor, it's important to know that, you know, hey, uh, uh, bank stocks may be a little bit more secure. We'll see about their rates of return. And I'm talking big banks here, you know, your Bank of America, your um, your U.S. bank, that kind of stuff. Your, your more regal, uh, regional local banks, you know, that kind of stuff that you might have gone in on, on the ground floor probably won't be affected all that much. I can't imagine, um, you know, how much... Uh, how much that, that that would change, but it's still important uh, to know this because uh, it could, when we're talking about mortgages, for mortgages, um, you know, this this simply means that some rates may uh, be impacted, I think, in a positive way, but that really comes down to, um, you know, your personal uh, contract with the bank, and a lot of newer mortgages, if you've gotten the new contract, actually would reference uh, the, this this fallback clause, and this also comes from the same Morgan Stanley article, that this new fall, fallback clause would uh, essentially sub in for uh, the liber rate, and hopefully, you know, hopefully it'll be better, or it'll be at least a similar rate. The only thing I wonder is if, and I don't have an answer for this, so I'm not saying whether it will or not. Should something happen again in the repo market, you know, we see. Um, a lot of retail, bigger retail chains having to restructure, and they've got uh, quite a few repo loans themselves, um, or are the the targets of many of these loans. Is that going to then negatively affect um, mortgage rates? Uh, is that going to affect mortgage interest rates if if that should blow up? And I don't have the answer for that right now. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and. As for uh, and, and one more point, I want to make here uh, before we move on. Do you and I have any control over this? If you said yes, then uh, maybe I want your number because I'm, I'm I'm sure that uh, it might be somebody I would want to grab for an interview. But um, again, my point here is much like with our opening salvo, this could dramatically in, uh, impact stocks. Again, should the repo market blow out or you know. Uh, uh, for bank stocks, does it mean that, um, you know, they have a lot of liquidity now because of LIBOR? Does it change with the new with the new rates? Well, a lot of investors are up in the air. It's a, a chicken and the egg scenario, and so uh, do we really have the same control that we that we think we do? Does the advisor have the same control that we think they do? Um, and it's just something to 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 keep in the back of your mind before we even talk about taxation. You know, how does this affect your your accumulation period before we even talk about the distribution? And I think that's important uh, when you're talking about any financial plan. And now, uh, as we move again, as we move down to this uh, micro sp uh, spot on on all these two macro topics, we're going to be talking about something that hits very close to home with Nashville soccer, or lack thereof, and how does it affect you, the taxpayer, and how does it affect us uh, as a wider nation? Stay tuned. Well, welcome back to the Kevin Prendeville Show. I hope you finished whatever you got from the last break, because this one, we're going to be talking uh, soccer and sports and Nashville and the wider nation at large, and how does it all connect? How does it even relate to the other two topics we've talked about? It's not going to be that difficult. You'll see as we uh, jump through a couple hoops, do some uh, quick uh, calisthenics, some quick mental 
uh, mapping, and we'll get there pretty quickly. You'll see. Here, um, we're going to set by setting the stage. So, uh, Major League Soccer is expanding. You see, um, we, way back when I was a kid, we had uh, just a couple um, MLS teams. And listen, I'll be upfront. I don't care that much about soccer. Uh, you know, I care about American football. Uh, I like baseball. I can watch basketball, although I'm not that into it. Hockey's too fast for me. Regardless, uh, I do always, I, I remember having friends that were into soccer. And as a kid up until about middle school, I played soccer. So I had a general idea that the MLS was, well, the major league uh, soccer uh, soccer league, like the NFL um, and and the MLB and the uh, NBA are all professional leagues for, uh, uh, for, for basketball and baseball and football. And we had, uh, growing up in, in Massachusetts, we had the New England Revolution that played at uh, the Patriots Stadium. And I don't know if they were ever good or not. I think I went to one or, or two of their games, and I was too small, and there was a real tall guy in front of me, so I didn't really ever see what was going on. Can't remember if they won or not. But it must have been sometime around the early 2000s. And now there's about 22 teams uh, in that same league, so it sounds great for growth. And, you know, we hear a lot about how popular soccer is uh, with the youth. And as those kids that I grew up with get older, you know, they're if they really like soccer, they're going to have their kids play soccer. And we have the CTE issue with American football where uh, families don't necessarily want their eight-year-old to be playing tackle football um, and breaking bones and maybe their head and their brain uh, before it's even fully developed. So um, it, it it surprises me when this Deadspin article came out in 2017 uh, that talked about is MLS a Ponzi scheme because everything looks like uh, MLS is a league on the grow. So, you, so people with money want to buy in while they can and, uh, you know, maybe make a profit. Like way back when, when people bought in to football teams and now those have blown up. Uh, famously, you know, Al Davis was a, was a coach at one point. Now the Davis family still owns the Las Vegas Raiders. And... Uh, uh, so, so it only, it's only natural that, um, you know, billionaires who have, I'm sure 42 CPAs on their staff and 36 financial advisors and all that stuff. Um, if they're going to make a decent uh, purchase, you know, an expensive purchase, uh, with a sports team that they would want to see a great return and 22 billionaires can't be that wrong. Right. Well, uh, here in this article by, um, by Neil DeMouse, uh, he does question that by taking uh, evidence from a number of different store, uh, sources here. And um, he actually first pulls in uh, a uh, couple of quotes here from Sports Economics, um, which says that the best indicator of expansion franchises is wor uh, worth is success at the bottom of the league, um, which is talking about you know TV revenues and ticket revenues and that kind of stuff. And the, uh, this quote says uh, that still looks that the MLS still looks more like AAA baseball, except for they make a few million more per year in t TV revenue. And I don't see too many people lining up to buy a AAA baseball 
team. Not saying that you or I could, but I'm, I'm talking people in that stratosphere that could do something um, do something about that. It's, uh, it's just not necessarily, uh, it's just not a hot commodity. But soccer does seem to be. Um, and so this article goes on to quote uh, uh, Stef- uh, Stefan uh, Szymanski. I hope I'm saying that right. It's a Polish last name here. Um, who's one of the co-authors actually of a book called Soccernomics and um, works at the University of Michigan. And uh, he talks about how um, they don't have the TV writing, so they're not generating the income from advertisements the way the NFL, NHL, MLB, NBA, that kind of stuff, uh, or, or those leagues are. And so the MLS instead uh, seems to be uh, actually maybe even uh, losing money, even though franchise values uh, are rising. And that being said, one of the expansion teams uh, that's looking at, that, that they're looking at is Nashville. And I want to I, I mentioned all of that in this uh, article on, on Deadspin um, beforehand because I want to set the stage and I want to set your mind's eye around this issue where um, MLS seems to be popular on the on the onset, but but how just how popular is it really? Well. Um, in Nashville here, we've had a couple of mayors, and uh, Mayor Cooper, um, who's our current mayor now, ran a, a campaign, a very successful campaign, on the fact that uh, he was going to manage spending, which is interesting because, you know, he is a Democrat, but um, the the man before him, Mayor uh, David Briley, uh, got in trouble for having a budget that was missing about $40 million. It just kind of you know, appeared on the on the uh, revenue line, and nobody knew where it came from. Nobody knew uh, uh, how it got there, but um, they may have been lying. I'm not accusing anybody of anything, uh, and there hasn't been an investigation or or, or, or any of that. But uh, things didn't look so hot, and and uh, in this economic boon, I guess maybe they were uh, anticipating some sort of growth or something like that. So it could be an honest mistake. But it's hard to, I, I don't know, I've never misplaced $40 million. I don't know if you have, um, but it seems like something that would be a little difficult to do. Either way, one of the things promised was this soccer stadium. It was a new stadium built on the uh, Nashville Fairgrounds. And this new stadium was supposed to bring in condos and, of course, revenue and all this stuff. Mind you that it is, you know, the music city. So it's not like Nashville doesn't have a name for itself uh, outside of the Titans or anything like that or the Predators. There are reasons people go to Nashville, and now um, it's the number one city uh, in the country, maybe the world. I haven't checked it for uh, bachelorette parties. So there's a huge uh, party scene, and there's you go to downtown and Broadway and all that stuff, and there's um, you know the, 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 there's always uh, or music row. There's always bands and music and people drinking and having a good time and um, and parties going on, and and so you wonder, okay, do we one really even need this soccer stadium, uh, talking to you know our previous mayor Briley. Do we even need a soccer stadium? You know, we've already got the Titans and, and, and the Predators. And how much additional revenue would it bring? Well, uh, there is one study that we can look at that says uh, people don't actually 
spend any new money on entertainment. They just redirect it. So, you know, you build a soccer stadium and the people that like soccer may spend less at local bars and restaurants. And not that the local economy is uh, of utmost importance, but you're not adding any new money to the economy, but you are adding a new expense. Why? Well, because Nashville is on the hook about $300 million worth for this new stadium and sports complex uh, that, that, that is supposed to be built. And there's that whole other thing about corporate welfare that don't even get me started on. Um, I know you probably wouldn't expect a conservative or a uh, um, finance person to be against corporate welfare. But look, I, I, I at the, uh, the core of my being, uh, believe in the free market. And the free market uh, has nothing in there about uh, taking money from the taxpayers and giving it to corporations just because those corporations or people um, are big, you know. Uh, uh, so that's another topic for another day. But that is really what this outrage is about. So a group developed uh, called Save Our Fairgrounds, and they're suing the city and saying basically uh, to save the fairgrounds and that's uh, the soccer stadium shouldn't be built, and in retaliation, uh, Major League Soccer has said that they uh, will just go somewhere else. They'll they'll pull a team out, and that brings us to back around to MLS itself. And this isn't their only city that they're looking at. They're looking at um, Charlotte, Cincinnati, Detroit, Indianapolis, Phoenix, Raleigh, Sacramento, uh, San Antonio, San Diego. Even Tampa, St. Petersburg, and St. Louis, there's a, a bunch of places that they're looking at. Um, even though they're not exactly a popular league, you don't have sports shows debating um, uh, soccer topics other than maybe uh, when the uh, World Cup comes around and America inevitably loses. And I'm sure sports shows in England talk about the Premier League and um, uh, uh, you know whatever other European leagues or... or uh, world leagues get talked about. No, nobody's really talking about the U.S. Major League Soccer League, and so the question becomes: Why is the uh, franchise valuations going up while the uh, income isn't exactly there? Uh, annual losses, in fact, uh, continue to mount, and. Normally, there might there would be an explanation for this. So, for instance, uh, Uber and Lyft notoriously have, and Tesla even have notoriously ran uh, at a loss for a number of uh, years at this point. And the simple solution to that is the fact that uh, there's enough public money and investor money uh, that goes into these companies that essentially uh, keep them afloat, and they're able to. Uh, leverage that into other projects, into advertising money and, and whatever they need to keep running while the prospect of their improved, uh, uh, th their company uh, rising in valuation uh, keeps people hungry and, and buying in well while it's supposedly low. Now, Simon Black has a great article called uh, Broke Billionaires that, um, that really highlights this issue in depth, and I would recommend you go uh, check this out because it, it does relate what we're talking to, but it's a little different with Major League Soccer because the question is, um, with the MLS posting losses, how on earth uh, are our franchise valuations going up? 
And one of the only explanations could be that it's a, that it's a Ponzi scheme. And um, now that's I'm not again accusing anything, but there is this uh, great article over on on Deadspin that I will um, recommend that you that you look up, um, where I'm getting a lot of this inf- information from. And the idea that that uh, the cities here's the and really here's the real problem is that the cities are are, are paying for it. The taxpayers are paying for it. Um, you know, a new stadium, a three hundred million dollar stadium gets built. That doesn't come from nowhere. That that money comes from taxation. That money comes from uh, bond issues. That comes from uh, uh, parking passes and toll booths and and all of this thing things for for a league that you know are we sure it's going to be around in a decade. Uh, and I'm not again. I'm not predicting a crash. I'm not predicting a fall. I'm just saying, what if a competitor comes up? What if another league that maybe it's run better and doesn't have the corruption scandals and the issues um, surrounding it comes up and and kicks it out? Then what does the city do? Does the news? Does that theoretical new league? Do they want a stadium of their own? So it is something to uh, to keep in mind, and I think we need to. Uh, really, as as we start to wrap up, also start to look at the politics of this. There's a lot of, again, politics that we have no control over because we might have voted in uh, uh, the new mayor, uh, Mayor Cooper, and he, again, went after this um, the stadium uh, deal and holdovers from the last administration are fighting back on it. So there's all this... Uh, a talk that goes uh, uh, between the two, and if you live in Nashville and it affects your taxes uh, at a time when you should be uh, doing real well, uh, you know uh, it, it's cause con- for, for concern, and it could affect your financial plan. And um, you know you did the best you could with your vote, but now it's down to the negotiating skills. So um, uh, uh, that's where we're going to end this segment, and we're going to transition into. Um, another macro topic because, and I want you thinking on this politics issue because we're going to actually be talking about something that is very important here to wrap up, and that is about Joe Biden. And uh, it's not looking so good. Is he going to go down with a ship? And what does that mean for the Democratic Party? And what does that mean potentially for your taxes? So, our final topic of the day is uh, going to be a little bit less on the complexity side and just a general note about uh, the state of the Democratic Party and specif- uh, specifically specifically about uh, uh, the Biden campaign. I mean, I um, I was not born yet when Biden made his pre- presidential run in the 80s uh, in which he was accused of plagiarizing and it uh, exploded his campaign. And... Uh, Boy, am I alive for this one, though. Man, um, he came out and he said he had the uh, corn pop thing. And uh, he said he was, uh, you know, he forgot which state he was on. He was uh, sleepy on on the stages and um, just wasn't uh, quite there. But according to all the polling, you know, he was still the same Joe that that we all knew from before. Um not according to Iowa caucus numbers, not according to the fact that he has left New Hampshire early to go to um, to go to South Carolina where he thinks he can do better, not to the point where uh, the campaign is running out of money. 
this is not good for for uh, uh, countries in wartime when they run out of money, and uh, you know they, they, they it will stop the production of, of of war machines, and that's exactly what this is. You know, competition, and uh, yeah, this is not this is not looking so hot. Um, we don't know what he's going to get in New Hampshire yet, but um, if he's already left, it's hard to imagine. Uh, that he's going to do well in the state. If he doesn't, uh, if he doesn't even, you know, uh, 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 crack. If he doesn't win South Carolina, I think he's out. Personally, you know, my, Mike Bloomberg is buying his way on stage. That's one thing. But, but uh, what does it say say about the state of the party where, um, you know, someone like uh, Joe Biden? Well, I don't blame him for not voting, uh, voting for Joe Biden, but when uh, Bernie Sanders is your nominee and the party establishment doesn't want it. And I don't know, you know, how many of the base wants it. I, I mean, I, I understand that there is a vocal um, section of the Democratic Party that is a communist socialist, but uh, are they really so strong in number that they were going to put Bernie Sanders in? I, I doubt it. I, I think this just has a lot to do with who else is there. You know, Bernie got snubbed in 2016, but for all her faults, you can at least say Hillary Clinton was an established candidate that... That, that wouldn't mock a voter um, on video and and at least knew how to run a, a campaign obviously better than the Biden team and um, and she was you know able to beat uh, Sanders even though there was some stuff behind the scenes um, so is it just a, a Sanders is all that's left or is the Democratic Party actually full-blown socialist akin to the English Labor Party? And that's the question I want to leave you with today. What does that come back when it comes to you? Uh, what does that mean when it comes to your taxes? What does that mean when it comes down to um, how the country is run? What does that mean for your personal freedoms? Because, uh, you know, Trump may be able to beat a anyone that runs against him right now. But what about 2024 when it's not Trump and it's Jeb Bush or it's uh, Lindsey Graham? Are they, are they going to be able to beat Sanders, Buttigieg, or or even Mike Bloomberg? Unfortunately, I kind of doubt it. And that's where we'll leave the Kevin Prendeville Show today. You can catch us uh, every day at uh, 6 a.m. And if you're listening to us on our podcast network, be sure to check out our other great shows here on the Kevin Prendeville Podcast Hub. <laughs>